Genesis 22, beginning at verse 10. And, Ab and Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. I remember reading this story or hearing it read when I was a child, literally being mesmerized by it. And I don't remember uh, how young I was, but I do remember seeing this picture, Rembrandt's, a copy of Rembrandt's picture of Abraham and Isaac. Here is Isaac upon an altar makeshift, and there wood, there's wood piled all around him. It's going to be a burnt offering. And here is Abraham with his hand raised, and, and up in the top right-hand corner of the picture is an angel shouting for Abraham to stop. And if you look closely, about two-thirds down on the picture is the discarded knife. Now I ask you what boy, what child could ever hear this story or see that picture and ever forget it. The call of God came to Abraham when he was 75 years old and God told him to get up out of the country, out of the house of his father and his kindred to a land that he would show him. The record of that is in the 12th chapter of Genesis and he got up and went not knowing where he was going. And if you uh, track the chapters after that, you'll trace the ups and downs of Abraham's life, including the Hagar incident, till you come to Genesis chapter 21. And there is the birth, the record of the birth of Isaac, the son of the promise to Abraham and Sarah. They named him Isaac because the name means laughter, significant of the joy, the birth of this son brought to their life. But in chapter 22 comes the bone-chilling command of God for Abraham to take the son of the promise and offer him as a burnt offering, as a sacrifice. And he headed up Mount Moriah to do it. Now there are two ways to understand this story. The most usual understanding of this is that this is the testing or the proving of a man's faith and he passed the test with flying colors. There is another way to understand this story, however, and it is that it is an example of the most remarkable intervention, divine intervention in the history of man. Now while the first is the customary way of understanding this story, and indeed it is, 
the proving of a person's faith because God did not have Abraham completely until he had Isaac. But I think there is much more to this story than that. I think that it is an example of the most remarkable intervention of God, the intervention of grace and the provision of that grace in the history of man. Now Abraham grew up around and among pagans. Before his call, as a matter of fact, Abraham lived in a pagan environment. And he lived among people who offered human sacrifices, infant sacrifices, to the pagan god Moloch. And he knew that God abhorred that practice. And God made it very clear in Leviticus chapter 18 that nobody was supposed, was permitted to offer their child to Moloch in sacrifice because he said, you will not profane the name of your Lord, of your God, for I am the Lord. And in the 28th chapter of 2 Chronicles, God said that to offer human sacrifices was an abomination. And so Abraham lived in the realization that God abhorred this despicable practice. He himself despised it, no doubt. And every core, every pore of this man's being was repulsed by this horrible thing of a person sacrificing his firstborn child. And no doubt he had seen fathers wrench their children, their firstborn, from the arms of grieving wives, mothers, and toss them into the fire, partly to prove their masculinity, but because in that pagan environment they believed that the fertility gods were pleased, and so anybody who would do it would be prosperous, guaranteed prosperity and fertility in the future. And Abraham must have delighted to know that God abhorred such a practice. Then one day, God comes to Abraham and says, you know that son of the promise? your only begotten, the one you love with all of your being, take him out and sacrifice him. And he set, it, he, he set out, he headed straight to Moriah because Abraham had resigned himself to be obedient to God Almighty. When God Almighty speaks, man must obey. But on his way to Moriah, he must have fought in his heart of hearts, why this and why me? How could it be that God who commands, who, who abhors such a thing, would require it of me? How can God go against God? I should have known Isaac was too good to be true. I should have known that there was a catch to this miracle. On his way to Mount Moriah, he resigned himself to do it, but he didn't like it. And then came the gut-wrenching question his son asked, Dad, where's the sacrifice? In other words, Dad, who's going, to be, who's going to be killed out on Mount Moriah today? And so he prepares the altar and he puts Isaac on it and he raises his hand to plunge the knife in. When the call came, Abraham, and between the first and second syllable, he must have discarded the knife. And when he turned around, he saw the one who would be slain caught in, a, in, a, in the thicket, a ram. And that ram who 
would bring about the release, the redemption of Isaac on Mount Moriah was a foreshadowing of the sacrifice, the lamb, who would bring about redemption on Calvary. Anybody who's ever been to Jerusalem knows where Mount Moriah is. It's the location of the Muslim's most holy shrine, the Dome of the Rock. And if you stand in the court of Mount Moriah and look across the, Kin the Kidron Valley, uh, over your eyes, going over the bus station of the transit system of Jerusalem, your eyes will fix on another little mount in a garden. It has the image of a skull, two sockets where the eyes were, and the nose, the place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, so that there on Mount Moriah, this sacrifice was made, and there on Mount Golgotha, another one was made. And so Abraham headed down the mountain, trudged up one side of Mount Moriah. He comes running down the mountain, all the way running. And I can just see Isaac coming behind him shouting, what was that? What happened out there? Can somebody explain to me what's going on? And inside his heart, Abraham must have thought, I've discovered who God really is today. I knew him as the God of authority. Now I know him and experience him as he really is. It's a whole new ball game today. For he made a discovery of concerning God on Mount Moriah that changed everything from then on. I want to tell you about that discovery. It changes Mount Moriah from this side, Mount Moriah. Changes forever how we look at faith. F-A-I-T-H, faith. For prior to Mount Moriah, sacrifice was a dead thing. But now it has become something in response to, of gratitude to what God has done. Prior to Mount Moriah, sacrifice was a dead thing. Now it has become a living thing in response to his sacrifice in our behalf. And the Apostle Paul puts it like this. I beseech you that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. And that really is all you need to know in order to have a right relationship with God. Watch this. All you need to know is that God has in his cross work accomplished something for you and you just in response to that give your life to him as a living sacrifice. Two men stopped at the door of a house one night to, to canvas for United Way. The man went to the door and he said, uh, they said, sir, we're, we're taking up, we're receiving money for the United Way. And he said, your neighbors next door uh, gave $500 in, in, in memory of their son killed in Vietnam. And the man said, well, isn't that great? He said, well, here, let me give you a check for $500. He gave a check for $500. When the man left, he closed the door and started back in the den. His wife said, honey, what was that? He said, well, some people from the United Way uh, coming by and the neighbors next door, the Joneses gave $500 in memory of their son killed in Vietnam. So I gave a check for $500. And the wife said, well, we don't have a son killed in Vietnam. He said, that's why I gave $500. And I don't know how exactly how it happened, but I 
remember standing out in a cotton field in West Texas. I was just a young boy, must have been middle school, 14 or 15, conscious of the fact that I had sinned against God and realizing that there was one event that I could not ignore, and that was the cross event. And somehow that day, I, I can't explain it, but I just gave my life to God as a living sacrifice in response to that. What we learn from Mount Moriah is, is that God loves us so much that he sacrificed him, his son for us. And out of response to that, I, I owe him my life. Here is my life. I want to live it for you. And it changes forever what we've understood about faith. And it changes forever what we've understood about ourselves. For on the way down from Mount Moriah, Abraham's thinking in his mind. I can read his thoughts. He's thinking in his mind. Now, I understand it now. I understand that this God who, who commanded me to give my son really isn't the kind of God who wants to take from me the thing that I cherish most. That's not his nature. God's nature is not that, that he would take from us the very thing we would keep if we had one choice. I understand it. And that's why he's running on the way down from Mount Moriah. He understands it, that God is not against him. He's for him. I tell you, it's the ultimate distortion. Are you listening? For a person to think of God as a being who is not for him but against him. And it is the ultimate tragedy from the Christian perspective, from the Christian dimension. The ultimate tragedy of life is to regard God as a being to be avoided. So why do we? Why is it that man repudiates and disavows and runs from God and hides out? Why is it that man is afraid of God? Well, I think the answer to that is twofold. I think partly because we're afraid that he will destroy our, rob us of our freedom, that this God, whoever he is or wherever he is, when he comes moving into our life, he'll cramp our style. And he'll put a damper on our life and rob us of our freedom. Are you listening? God is not the enemy of your freedom, my friend. He is the author of it. The pastor of the First Methodist Church in San Antonio, Texas, came from a family, very wealthy family. His father owned a large deep sea fishing operation where they, took, where they would take people out and be guides to fish out in, the, out in the deep water, deep sea fishing. When his father died, he left this business to his son who was the pastor of the First Baptist Church in San Antonio. And he rented this business out to a man um, on the, with one stipulation that two weeks out of the summer he could go down to, that, to, the, to the gulf and take people out as a guide out deep sea fishing. It, it was a joy of his life. And that was the stipulation. And so one summer he took a group out and they were out deep sea fishing and they hooked a dolphin. Now, not only is that illegal to catch them, but he, he, don't, he wouldn't do it anyway. So they were gonna release the dolphin, but they couldn't release the dolphin. It was hooked in a way they couldn't free it. 
And so they worked for hours, literally, trying to free that dolphin from that hook, and they couldn't do it. And they decided, well, we're going to have to cut the line. But he said, no, we can't cut the line because that hook in his mouth, he'll certainly die. And we, we need to keep working. He said, about that time, the dolphin's mate surfaced and stood on her tail and, 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 and chattered as if to say, for God's sake, isn't there somebody who can help us? So he said, as they were moving the... Uh, navigating the boat around to try to get that dolphin released. He said, one of the most phenomenal things that ever happens in nature happened. This dolphin came to the surface and turned over like a little dog would do, as if to say, oh, I understand it now. You're, you want to help. Oh, I understand it now. You're for me. He said, with that dolphin lying flat on the surface of the water, they maneuvered their fishing boat over to the side of the dolphin and, and uh, to the side of the, where, where they he, he touched right against the side of the boat. And, and one of the men reached down and worked the hook until it was free. And he said, the dolphin stood on its tail and looked us in the eye. What seemed like moments must have been just seconds as if to say, thank you and disappeared. And the lesson of that event is this. You are never really free until you place your hand, life in the hand of the master. He's not the enemy of your freedom. He's for you. And sometimes I think we disavow God because we're afraid He'll destroy our peace, peace such as it is, because we've developed this tolerance for sin, especially our own, and this rationale to explain it away. He's not going to disturb your peace. He's, he's for you. Let me read to you what Paul thought about it. Listen to these words of the Apostle Paul. It's found in the eighth chapter of Romans. Listen, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also will with him freely give us all things? What he's saying is this, that since he made provision for the greatest need, he makes provision for every need. He's for you, man. If you get to feeling bad about yourself, this is what you need to do. You need to go in your room, close the door, and stand before the mirror and say four words. God is for me. And you need to say those emphasizing each word. Say it four times. God is for me. God is, not was, will be, is for me. God is for me, not against me. God is for me, for me. And whatever else he learned on the way down from Mount Moriah, he learned this, that what he had understood about God was totally inferior to what he understood about God now. God is for me. Robert Craning was, is on the staff at Evangelical, First Evangelical Free Church and one night about 10 o'clock, somebody called the church building out in California where he, Fullerton, he answered the phone. It was a guy in New Jersey. He said, I've just been um, listening to one of uh, Pastor Swindoll's tapes. And he said, I never heard anything like that. Can you talk to me a minute? And he said, well, sure. He said, 
I, the, the boy said, you know, I think I, the young man said, I think I've uh, walked out on God. I think I'm, I've, I've turned my back on God. I don't know if there's any hope for me. He said, well, I think you probably, there's some, you know, you haven't totally abandoned God. It's one o'clock in New Jersey and you're calling for help. He said, let's talk. He said, well, I, I grew up in a religious home. My father was narrow, legalistic, pharisaical. He said, I gave up on religion. He said, I fell in love and we were going to get married and my fiance walked out and married somebody else and I gave up on love and human beings. And he, he said, I'm, I'm in a homosexual relationship. I've been in this homosexual relationship for four years. Every time I look at my lover, I feel such guilt. He said, sir, do you think I'm going to hell? And Robert Crane said, do you know the story of the prodigal son? You remember that story from your chase? He said, yeah, I think I do. Refresh my memory. He said, well, it's the story about a boy who went to his father and, 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 and got what was rightfully his and headed out to the far country. Yeah, he said, I remember that story. Sure, I remember that. And then Crane said, at what point do you think that father turned off the porch light and went in the house. And the boy began to sob. The young man began to sob. Through his tears, he had to wait a while. They talked and he said, let me tell you, son, the light's still on and the father is still on the porch. It's what I find when I read in the Garden of Eden. I don't find man putting his hands to his mouth shouting, God, where are you? What I find is God putting his hands, over, cupping his hands over his mouth. And what I hear is God saying, Adam, I want to love you. I'm for you, man. Come out from hiding, Adam. I want to bless you. So down from Mount Moriah, they discovered it. What this, cha what this meant changed what they thought about themselves. One last thought and I'm through. Mount Moriah changed forever the way we look at the world. And that stigma was gone and that guilt was removed. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, get back down the mountain. I want to make you a blessing to the world. Hurry down the mountain, Abraham. I'm going to make you man's blesser. And all of a sudden I think, is this an exaggeration to say? All of a sudden I think Abraham fell in love with the world. Not too long ago I went out to, to a farmhouse in West Texas to um, the family of a man who grew up on this farm is a family farm and he uh, died unexpectedly with a heart attack and I went back to see his family, his wife. He had a son about 35 years old, very successful man in business. And I visited with him a little while and as I started to leave, this son, fine young man, followed me out to the car. And, 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 and he said, Gerald, he said, you know when I was a kid growing up on this farm, he said, I hated it. Hated every minute of it. He said, I hated the chopping cotton and working cattle. And he said, my daddy loved this farm. And he said, you know, when mother called me and told me that daddy died, and he said, I got packed and I headed home. He said, when I started driving up this dirt road to our house, I fell in love with this farm. 
He said, my dad literally gave his life for this place he loved. How could I not love it? This is our father's world. He loved it and loves it. And every blade of grass and every animal that crawls on the face of the earth, he loves. How could I do anything but love it? My father loves you. How could I do anything else but love you in return? And all of a sudden, he took Abraham and he hurled him back into the world to become islands of hope for people to come and find in them this truth. God loves you. And that's why I do. I was waiting for my ball game the other day and I saw a commercial. Have you seen this one? It came on like this. It said, Wounds Clinic. W-O-W-O-U-N-D-S Clinic. Wounds Clinic. And I'm thinking, what is this? And, and there was this little catching question. It said, do you have old wounds that just won't heal? And it told about where to go. Wounds Clinic in Dallas. Gave a telephone number and an address. This lady got on and she said she had surgery and an incision would never heal and she went to the wounds clinic and got healed. You know, that kind of stuff. And I got me a little piece of paper and I, I wrote down, I need to remember that. And I wrote that down. You got any old wounds that won't heal? You come, you've come to the wounds clinic. For the way I see it, I think I, I hope I'm not wrong, but the way I see it is that this world is a world in pain. Paul said, the whole world waits with groaning for the revelation of the sons of men. This world is wounded and hurting and we're the wounded clinic, wounds clinic. Wouldn't it be great? Somebody checking out at the supermarket tomorrow says to the clerk, do you all have a wounds clinic here in Durant? And the clerk says, oh, yes, we do. Down on 2nd and Evergreen, if you got any wounds that won't ever heal, go down there. They love you there. Let's pray together. Our Father, Help us to see this picture from this scripture this way. And let it be such that we'd never be the same again. And that we, we know that you don't want dead sacrifice. The blood of bulls and goats, the sacrifices you despise. Help us to see that what you want is our life in response to your love. Help us now, Father, to see how we really are, what we really are, islands of hope in the midst of hopeless people. And grant us, Lord, the courage to find our place and to be it and do it. For I ask in Jesus' name, in the early service, three girls were here, islands of hope, 
with another college student. But this college student came to Southeastern, got a roommate, and this roommate and her friends were this, was this island of hope for that young lady. She's now come to the Lord. Came forward this morning professing her faith in Christ. And what I will share that with you for is this, that there might be some of you who are just like that girl. You've been touched by people who really care. And you want to respond to the love of God and give your heart to Christ. Step out and come and do that today. Or maybe you need to become that person that, that when pain brings them to you, that you can give them hope. Rededicate your life to Christ. Join this church fellowship, this wounds clinic. Would you do it while we stand to sing and pray you will?